When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So there are a pair of topics I want to discuss today, and we'll start off with precious metals. The big headline in in precious metals is that 2019, at least in terms of U.S. mint sales, was a a pretty poor year, especially for silver. In fact, silver sales, uh, if we're going to look specifically at American Silver Eagles, which is their, you know, by far their most popular silver product, the... uh, the worst year, actually, since 2007. And, of course, it was 2008, 2009 that the party really got it started in the silver market in terms of, of silver demand being pushed up because of the Great Recession, because of the Fed and their easing and all of that. And, and 2019 here, we're, we're almost coming full circle. Uh, silver Eagle sales in 2019 actually dropped below $15 million. So a little under 15 million ounces. And, and of course, to put this all in perspective, we can think of the, the silver market as being about 1,000 million ounces or 1 billion ounces coming onto the market each year. And so in terms of, of American Silver Eagle sales, it's, it's pretty low. Now, now thankfully, there's a trend. There's more to this story. There's, there's been a trend for quite some time now in that we see a smaller and smaller amount of, of bullion demand coming through the, the U.S. Mint. And, and there's a variety of reasons for that. But a big part of it is, is that uh, it, investors around the world and even domestically here in the United States are just turning to other sources, whether it's private mints and, and they're just going for real generic stuff because it's still silver, still gold, or they're going to other mints around the world. Uh, that are more government type in nature, whether it's the Royal Mint, the Perth Mint, which I'll be talking about here in a second, uh, as well as many other ones which have, have been really producing more and more innovative coins and whatnot. Whereas the U.S. Mint, uh, they sort of have their eagles, they have their gold buffaloes, and, and they have some interesting stuff that they've worked on. They have their, uh, what is it, the uh, the five-ounce... Uh, uh, coins that that kind of showcase different you know state parks and stuff like that or national parks and 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 they have uh some of their you know like lunar series coins like uh not not lunar like lunar year but like uh lunar is in the moon and whatnot they have some interesting coins but nothing compared to what the perth mint or the royal mint or what some other mints have been doing in terms of of innovation and, and really new designs so I, you know, this has been a trend for a while now. And of course, the other side of the story is that the Perth Mint actually had a very good year in 2019. In fact, they finished the year extremely well in November and especially December, seeing uh, sales pick up pretty significantly over at the Perth Mint. Um, now, the, the, the amount that it went up, I mean, the Perth Mint is still relatively small in terms of the amount of demand that they satisfy relative to the U.S. Mint. It's going to take a while, I think, for them to catch up. But they have grown 
tremendously in the last uh, 10 years in terms of, of the products they put out, but also the amount of, of just the, the volume of sales that they push out of, of silver and of gold. And ultimately, I mean, we, we have to ask ourselves uh, this question, how important are Western bullion investors to the overall physical silver and gold market? And, and I think from 2016 onward, I think we can say pretty definitively, at least for, for a couple of years here, not very important. Not very important. And, and the reason being that we just haven't been buying a whole lot relative to uh, places like India, right? Where, where silver demand is off the charts or has been you know, on and off for, for many years now. And, and as a whole, I mean, Indians, they're, to some extent, they're buying like silverware and, and silver jewelry and things of that nature. Uh, but, but in terms of coins and bullion, I imagine American Silver Eagles and even Perth Mint products don't make up a huge amount of their overall purchases, right? And so eventually, you know, my, my long-term thesis on the silver and gold market is that we'll see this return of the Western investor in the, the physical market. We, we already see it to some extent in the paper market. But we'll see it more and more in the physical market uh, because of, of recession, because of the Federal Reserve, destruction of currency. It's going to happen. Uh, Westerners, though, tend to be a little bit more short-sighted. Right? We're, we're looking six months into the future and, and how much is a stock market going to go up in six months? I mean, that's what a lot of, you know, or the next year or, or whatever. Or how about I just, you know, for those that are long-sighted, that pretty much we can sum that up to making larger contrib- uh, contributions to their retirement funds and letting compound interest do its work until they retire, which sounds great in theory, but, but I think is going to fail tremendously eventually. And, and the idea of precious metals is just not on most people's radar, especially physical precious metals. Now, the, like I said, the bright side to this, though, is that Perth Mint has been seeing much stronger sales and is picking up part of that um, slack. And, and interestingly, in December, which was a very good month for the Perth Mint, they actually credit a, a large amount of this increase to Germany. Uh, basically, sales to Germany and uh, the German public. And, and of course, we have to ask ourselves why is that the case? Now, Germany for a while now has been trying to move forward with different policies, and I'm not entirely familiar with them because if you can't tell, I'm not German. But uh, as far as uh, reducing the average individual's ability to, to put their money into gold, limiting the amount they can purchase, I believe that's, that's been kind of the primary way they've been doing it. And in addition to that, Germany, which is Europe's largest economy, is kind of on the verge of recession, right? And, and on top of that, you have a ton of really strange dynamics between, and I shouldn't say strange, but, but strange relative to what we talk about in terms of the Federal Reserve and, and its dynamics for the U.S. economy. Uh, the ECB and Germany and other European economies that are not as strong or haven't benefited as much from the euro and, and, and from the ECB, there's some strange dynamics there as well. And, and as we move into a more of a, a global recession, we see uh, Germany and then, you know, of course, Italy is already sort of around that, that recession point, but also France, potentially the UK, even though they are leaving the EU and, and some other European countries kind of slip into recession and whatnot. Inevitably, the, the ECB is going to have to act uh, one way or another. I'm sure Christine Lagarde is, is 
maybe going to have a different brand of whatever it takes than Mario Draghi had, but but it's still going to necessitate pretty strong action. At least that's how the ECB is going to view it. And so you have this weird dynamic of them moving into a recession and, and a lot of fears about what the future holds for the Eurozone, for the Euro, for Germany as as an economy, as, as sort of the powerhouse economy of uh, of Europe. So a lot of question marks, and it's not surprising to see a, a significant surge in bullion demand in Germany. But I, I think that in terms of the West, we're just getting started. You know, much like uh, the the physical industrial demand for, for silver is sort of just I don't want to say always going to be there, but but it's it's pretty steady year in and year out, and and even on down years in terms of economic growth, it's still pretty strong. Uh, you know, I, in many ways, I feel like a lot of other, like Eastern, uh, like Indian uh, silver demand in other Eastern countries, that that their demand is fairly steady, much like that industrial demand. It has been over the years because, again, they're not short-sighted. Uh, these are, are people that have, have practiced holding their money in uh, holding their wealth in, in physical precious metals as well as other assets for hundreds of years. I mean, it's part of their culture, which and it's certainly not part of our culture for the most part here in the United States and here in the West. Uh, they're very steady in that. In fact, you know, when they see silver prices decline, they buy when they see their currency decline and, and therefore silver or gold prices increase relative to their currency, they buy. I mean, yeah, there's going to be years, there's going to be months where they may not, but, but as a whole, a very strong and dependable part of this physical supply and demand picture for silver. Really what I'm waiting for is for the Western investor to catch on to that. And we're not at that point yet. I mean, last time it, it took the Great Recession, it took quantitative easing, it took 0% interest rate policy, it took uh, the entire financial system almost entirely falling apart. It took a, a huge crash in the stock market and the housing market for investors to decide maybe we should put some of this money into silver and gold. And it probably is going to take that uh, again this time around to see that type of, of surge in demand. But but when it does happen, believe me, all of a sudden the, the physical market will begin to matter uh, a heck of a lot more than it does right now. Right, because so much of this is is paper, but believe me, there's going to be people by the thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, maybe, that are going to listen to content like my own and many others, and, and realize, well, not only should I be hedging in in silver and gold, but I want to hedge the correct way with physical and and not with GLD, SLV, COMEX futures, whatever. So, anyways, moving on. The other topic I want to totally switching gears here to some extent. There's some similarities as far as the Fed and whatnot that I want to talk about, but switching gears here, uh, AOC, right? That's the acronym for Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, the uh, the Democratic lawmaker that everybody loves to bash on on the right at least, and then of course on the left, I'm sure she's. Well, I think many younger people uh, like her. I think maybe some more establishment Democrats, uh, including those in Congress, probably are not as much of a fan of her. Uh, and, and it's not somebody that I have talked about a whole lot. You know, she also has other, you know, there's other, I forget what the term is for them, but there's, I want to say, four of these these young uh, female lawmakers. There's there's Ilhan Omar, which is actually from my home state, Minnesota, um, and and there's at least one or two other 
Democratic lawmakers that are young, uh, I think women of color, and and generally seen as, as potentially the future of the Democratic Party. But but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has maybe garnered the most attention since she took office. And, you know, it's kind of funny. You know, I, you guys know I'm not huge into partisan politics because I'm not on the right or the left, really. But, you know, if I were to place myself somehow on that spectrum, I would be more on the right than the left. And so, yeah, uh, AOC, she says some things that obviously grinds my gears. I, I think it's just yeah, maybe unintelligent or just wrong, whatever. Uh, obviously, I don't think any of you would be surprised to say that that uh, her ideology is nowhere near that of, of mine and, and many of you guys as well. Uh, with that being said, I, I'm also not one to just sit on here and, and sort of, uh, I guess, bash her to no end, to, to kind of turn her into a meme or something like that, which which many on the right have done, and, and that's fine, I, I whatever, like, but but it, it's, it's funny, I guess, from my perspective, because yes, I disagree with a lot of, most of her, her policies, her ideology, etc., but in many ways, I, I see her as, as being a product of, uh, whatever you want to call it, outrage culture, or of, of media sort of bending people's, not opinions, but, but well, let's look at the book 1984. The book 1984, uh, each day there was, I forget how long, a minute of hate, basically where, where all these people would get together in their workplace or, or whatever, and, and, and up on the screen uh, there would be this, this leader who would, would kind of lead them in this minute of, of hate, where they just scream and yell at a person that they're told that they should should vilify for reasons A, B, and C. And and I see that a lot in today's politics. It's not just on the right, you know, this this vilifying of, of AOC who who may or may not deserve it, you know, based on her ideology. Uh, but but also on, on the left. I mean the left vilifies, you know, pick your politician, a, a Ted Cruz or <laughs> Mitch McConnell uh, or, or in the media, you know, there's plenty of the same for, for people like, uh, ah, gosh, I forget her name, the host of uh, MSNBC, uh, one of the hosts, I forget her name, but also of, of people like on the right, like Ben Shapiro or, or uh, on the left, you know, the Young Turks or whatever. And, and don't get me wrong, like a lot of these media figures, these politicians, I'm not a big fan of them. Um, but... It's, it's funny the parallels that we can draw between something like 1984 and this, this time to kind of hate and vilify and scream and talk about how terrible these people are and, and today's uh, media and the way that they do that. Do I think that the media portrays them inaccurately? Not necessarily. I mean, look, like a lot of the things that... like They maybe take it too far sometimes, both on the left and the right, but I think that the... The problem here is is that you know AOC. I, I don't know if I'd like her as a person. I, I I tend to think that I probably wouldn't like a lot of politicians as a person. But ultimately, if I were to be living in, in New York, I think she's New York City. Uh, that's her her district. If I were to live in New York City, I wouldn't be voting against her because I don't like her as a person because I hate her or something like that. I mean, I'm a little bit more just, I don't know, 
old-fashioned about it. I mean, it's sort of just like I disagree with their policies. Therefore, I mean, like look at look look at somebody like Obama. Now, every politician I think has two sides, and and Obama. Let's be honest. I mean, in terms of his conduct in office and the way he carried himself and whatnot, there's a lot of people that found him very likable, regardless of their political affiliation. Just found him as a very likable guy, right? The same is true for George W. Bush, regardless of your view on his politics. Very likable guy. Same is true to some extent for for Clinton and and for, I'm sure, H.W. Bush and Reagan. And I know some of you are going to say, like, no, like, uh, Obama was slimy or George W. Bush is a war criminal. I get that. Like, but there's a lot of people that view them as, as very likable individuals. But that is never going to cause me to vote for somebody. Right? Just like if, if let's say, you know, some by some crazy stretch of imagination or whatever, there was some candidate up there that was really really resounded with my values in terms of politics and, and my ideology and yet their their people skills were just uh, subpar and, and they weren't a great speaker and, and they seemed like you know maybe they would be a great fit for office well their policies I mean I'd still have to agree with them and so I probably would still vote for them right and so I guess that's just my take on things that, that I try and separate somebody's politics from their policies Donald Trump is a great example uh, in terms of, of Donald Trump's actions prior to being in office and even when he's in office, some of the things he says, some of the things he's done, I think are, from from my faith perspective, sinful, uh, <laughs> unintelligent at times. Um, I'm just being real with you guys, and, and, and I hope you guys don't get too angry about this, but whatever, if you do, that's fine. I just, you know, some of the things he does is like, like, what are you doing, man? Like, why did you have to say that? Or like... Uh, where does this come from? And, 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 and I'm not going to defend him on a lot of those things. Uh, but in terms of policies, well, I, I guess I sort of take it policy by policy. Now, with that being said, I'm not going to forgive any of those things and just say like, well, you know, because of these, because his policies, he's automatically a, a, a good fit for office. No, I think we have to consider both parts of, of that. But... But in terms of those policies, it just so happens to be that I don't like a lot of those either. <laughs> but, but, but I try and separate those two from each other, right? I try not make it all about the type of person a politician is, nor do I make it all about their, their positions on things, right? Um, with that being said, I do value, you know, when I when I do cast my vote, yes, I I place a high emphasis on on their position, their policies, their ideology. But I also place a pretty big emphasis on who they are as a person, or who I, from my best judgment, from what I can see of them, what their uh, their personality, their integrity, their character is. So, anyways, that's a big, long, like, what, ten minutes spiel about. But, anyways, what was it that AOC was right about? What, what am I talking about in the title of today's podcast? Well, she uh, she tweeted something out that sounded like it would be something that I would say here on, on this podcast, and, and it was something akin to this. Uh, stocks continue to soar while wages stagnate, inequality in a nutshell. And that's not a word-for-word quote, but basically what she's saying is that the stock market continues to soar, that wages 
don't, and that that's basically a big cause of inequality. To which I would say, like, yes. Like, I don't know, maybe I should go and actually retweet her on that, because she's absolutely right. Now, I think our agreement probably stops right there. Because her solution to this is is going to vary drastically from my solution and, and many of my viewers' uh, perceived solution to this inequality picture, right? I think it starts at the Fed. I think we, we do have to talk about, uh, additionally, though, uh, the, the role of government uh, and, and the immense amount of power that government has, as well as the, the strong connection today between the corporate sector and the government sector. I think there's certain elements of, of far too powerful of a government, but there's also certain elements of corporatocracy or oligarchy or whatever you want to call it in today's world. And no, this is, I'm not just referring to Trump. I'm just ref- way before Trump was in office, this was, this was true. Whether you look at the healthcare sector, the defense sector, uh, whatever, uh, corporatocracy, oligarchy, it's, it's, it's a big part of, of U.S. politics in 2020. And so I think this is, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to, to look at this, but I think it has to start at the Federal Reserve. I mean, ultimately, it is the Federal Reserve that has been complicit in this melt-up in stocks. Really, this entire bull market in stocks dated all the way back to, you know, the 2009, I want to say it was like March of, of 2009 or something, when the S&P bottomed out at, I kid you not, 666 points. Since then, I mean, it's it's largely been a bubble, at least by today's standards, certainly a bubble, maybe not back in 2010, but in 2020, a bubble that is fueled by credit growth and by increases in liquidity. And there's been no larger contributor to those two factors than the Federal Reserve. The federal government plays a role in it, but the federal government could not exist today, likely, it could not fund itself without the Federal Reserve. Um, other central banks, sovereign wealth funds around the world, etc., they've contributed to this as well. Uh, but ultimately, a lot of it comes back to the Federal Reserve. And so why is this inequality? Well, we'll, we'll look at wages, first of all. Wages are dispro- disproportionately important for the middle class and the working class compared to the wealthy. And, and the reason being for that is that the wealthy already have a large amount of wealth. Oftentimes, you know, many, many multiples of their yearly salary uh, and, and, and a large amount of their future wealth creation, in many cases, not always, depends on what, what they're salaried at and whatnot, very well may not even come from working, from a paycheck, from a salary. Rather, their increases in wealth in the future comes from... Uh, real estate, from the, the stock market, from making deals, large business deals, etc. That's ultimately where it, it comes from. Whereas for the working class, most of their future wealth creation, their accumulation of wealth, paying off their house mortgage and, and making equity there or, or stocked away money for retirement, most of that is going to come from wages from their paycheck, from their salary, right? And and the problem here with wages is that, yes, wage growth is slow. Some months are better than others. However, if you look at the real rate of inflation, wages are 
are nowhere near uh, keeping pace with, with, with inflation, right? We're looking at wage growth, I would guess, year over year, maybe on a very good month, like three plus percent, but on average, probably around like 2%, 2.5% since the Great Recession. I, I don't have all the data in front of me, but I'm just ballparking it here. Uh, keeping pace with or slightly outpacing the official inflation data, which places inflation somewhere around 1.6 to 2.2%. I think that's December or November's figure, so maybe a little outdated, but but in that ballpark, okay? So slightly outpacing inflation. So great. I mean, it's right. We're, we're having a bit of wage growth each year. However... When you look at what inflation actually is, and not those bogus government numbers, but you actually look at the data, or at least the, the best we can get, because the government doesn't really release that data, uh, you know, inflation is actually close to like 5%. And so all of a sudden, wage growth of 3.5% year over year is still, in real terms, in terms of purchasing power, a loss of 1.5% each year. And, and that's problematic, because guess what? You're losing 1.5% in real purchasing power, but the price of everything is going up. Not everything. Flat screen TVs, PCs, smartphones, maybe not. But vehicles, transportation, housing, uh, healthcare, education, even food, all of those things are going up. And and it makes living and, and making ends meet and saving for retirement a heck of a lot more difficult, right? And, and that's disproportionately affecting the middle class, even the upper middle class, the lower class, the working class, etc. Disproportionately affecting them. And that's contributing to inequality. And then on the other side, you have the wealthy and their relation to the stock market. As I said, the wealthy are less dependent generally on a salary or anything like that. I mean, look at, it's an extreme example, but look at somebody like Jeff Bezos, Right? His wealth fluctuates a fair amount, not from year to year, but but like literally minute to minute during the trading day because most of his wealth is because he's he owns a large chunk of, of Amazon, right? That's where his wealth comes from. Now, it's an extreme example, right? If we're looking at someone with a net worth of, of 20 million or 50 million or whatever, uh, it's it's not as easy as that. They may or may not own a company, but but a lot of their wealth, as I said, is not coming straight from a salary or wages or anything like that. They're, they're, they're past that. And instead, a large amount of their wealth is in real estate, it's in businesses, or it's in the stock market. Or, you know, various, you know, hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera. That's where they generate their wealth. And that's where that inequality has largely been coming from. On, on one hand, you have the middle class and the working class uh, losing purchasing power and seeing their wages really lose purchasing power year for year because of this misreported inflation. But then on the other hand, you have the, the top 1% owning a massive amount of the stock market, massive amount of real estate, commercial real estate and whatnot. And they're disproportionately benefiting from the Federal Reserve, as I said earlier, which has been responsible for a lot of this credit and, and liquidity growth and, and thus the stock market uh, moving up over the last 10 plus years, right? And so you have the situation where you have a, a let's say somebody that has a net worth of $20 million and 18 million of that is 
indirectly or directly exposed to these assets, whether it's partly in, in a business, which is benefiting from this, or it's in the stock market, which is almost certainly benefiting from the Fed and this liquidity and credit growth, or it's in real estate, which is benefiting from it. They're seeing their net worth increase rapidly day to day, year to year. And it's, as I said, let's say they have 20 million, it could be 15 million of their net worth that is in those you know, three kind of asset classes, real estate, stocks, or, or businesses that are directly or indirectly benefiting from the Federal Reserve. 15 million, right? And so if, the, if as a whole, their portfolio uh, goes up 10% on a yearly basis, which is absolutely reasonable, well, first of all, they're outpacing inflation by 5%. So it's a 5% growth in, in real terms. Uh, but, but furthermore, they're seeing an increase in their net worth of what 1.5 million dollars and then you go back to the to the uh salaried worker making eighty thousand dollars a year right which is a pretty decent gig and yet he's losing purchasing power year after year or she whatever god women can make eighty thousand plus more too (laughs) but but they're losing purchasing power each year in that salary. And whatever they do put in the 401k that they have or their IRA or whatever, whether it's it's equity in their house or into the stock market or into a mutual fund or hedge fund or some retirement tool, they're, they're going to benefit. In some, you know, their portfolio, all else being equal, very well may still increase by 10%. Great. But it's a smaller amount of their net worth. It's a smaller amount that they are actually invested in those assets. So let's say their net worth, let's say they're in their 50s, and let's say their net worth is, I don't know, a million dollars, which would be pretty great. I mean, you have a house plus a a really good retirement fund, but still a million dollars, and it goes up on average by 10% when you take into account appreciation and value of the house, the stock market, and whatever else they have for retirement, 10% 10% would be a pretty good year, and yet their net worth has increased by $100,000. A good year. Gains that almost certainly will be given back in the recession, the next stock, bear market, etc. Their net worth goes up by 100000 And then you have the 20 millionaire, their net worth goes up by $1.5 million, right? And even that is a bit of an extreme example because the reality is a lot of people don't have a net worth uh, around a million dollars in their house, their stock market, etc. A lot of people are at the age of 50 or 60 and, and their net worth is maybe $200,000 or maybe zero when you take into account uh, uh, a mortgage on a house and, and uh, maybe some debt that they still have to pay off and etc., etc. Uh and, and they just you know haven't made a lot of progress in, in building equity in their house, or maybe they've tapped it into, into it in the past, or maybe they their job, their career just hasn't gone where they expected it to. They've had to withdraw money from their savings and from their retirement in 2001 and, and, and in 2008 and 9, and, and they've, they're just getting started again, and their net worth is maybe $100,000 or $200,000, right? And it gets even worse than that. I mean, you have a lot of people that have no money in those assets, why? I mean, sometimes it's because people are genuinely just not far-sighted. Uh, they're not looking far into the future. 
Sometimes it's because they listen to the Silver Fortune show and they say, wow, the stock market sure looks uh, like it's in a bubble today. Maybe I should be throwing this in precious metals. Sometimes it's because, hey, guess what? They've been dealing with five plus percent inflation, four or five, six, uh, whatever, since you know 2008 or 2009, and their wages haven't kept pace, and, and they're just struggling to make ends meet. And, and contributions to their 401k or any form of savings, that's an afterthought right? That's how that inequality is, is formed. And that's why AOC is, is right. Now, her solutions are going to vary drastically. But ultimately, this is a Fed-driven bubble and a Fed-driven inequality gap, inequality bubble, right? And, and it's not going to end well. Inequality rarely ends well. Inequality is a normal point of society. I'm not, you guys know I'm not a socialist, right? I'm not going to come out here and say that we need to tax the rich at an extremely high rate and somehow expect the government to to give it to the poor. No, that's that's obviously not my policy. My policy is, is that that's a normal stratification of society. I'm not saying we, we should live in a caste society or anything like that. I'm just saying that that's... That's normal. People are not equal in terms of ability, nor are they equal in terms of wealth, and, and that's sort of normal. I have no problem with that. However, the government and the Federal Reserve and central banks the world over artificially create even more inequality than normally would be present. And as that inequality builds, you have a larger and larger amount of, of, of things like commercial real estate, in the stock market being held by the 1% and they're enriched further. And what do they do with that? They reinvest that in the stock market. And a smaller and smaller slice of this pie is held by by the 99% or the bottom 80%. Right? That's the problem that I'm talking about here right now. And it's perpetuated by the Federal Reserve. And it's not going to end well. In, in a perfect world. Not, okay, we're never going to end up with a perfect world. But in a pretty decent scenario, I mean, what if the Fed was just abolished? Or what if the Fed, what if the left and the right realized that, hey, this inequality is being increased by the Federal Reserve. They're the enemy of the people, the 99%. Let's get rid of them, right? That, that would be a pretty decent solution, or at least a, a, a good move, a move in the right direction. But, but let's be real here. What we're going to end up with is a socialist in office. We're going to end up with redistribution of wealth. We're going to end up with even more animosity against the 1%. Now, does this end in revolution? Does this end in martial law? Does this end in in some sort of communism and and, and whatever? I don't know. Socialism? But... But what I can say is this is inequality, this artificial amount of inequality that far exceeds anything that would happen in in a capitalistic, more capitalistic society is bad news. And it's not going to end well. And and, and on its face is just immoral. Inequality is not immoral. But when it's inequality because of uh, individuals and corporations using the government to enrich themselves, or when it's because the Federal Reserve is is assisting them in, in, in increasing their portfolio and, and increasing their overall wealth and etc., uh, it, it really trends towards that that immoral situation, and, and it's it's not a good. It's something that that is talked about widely in the left, 
is not talked about widely on the right, nor oftentimes is it talked widely in this, you know, uh, alternative financial media, uh, or or even here in this podcast. I don't talk a ton about wealth inequality. Uh, sometimes it's honestly because inequality, as I said, is, is I think fine uh, to some extent. Heck, even if you look back in history, inequality at even a crazy extent, I would say is is fine as long as it's relatively fair in terms of, of capitalism and, and kind of free market type of situation. I mean, you look in the past, the the oil barons of the past, or, or you look at the, the 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 owners of the railroads or whatever. Now, don't get me wrong, even back in the 18 or 1900s, there was an element of that oligarchy, that corporatism, where they used the government to, to bend to their will, right? Which is which is always a bad thing, right? But But that was a pretty crazy inequality gap back then. But if it's done through through moral means, I, I have no problem with it, even if it's extreme. However, when we get that that extreme inequality through these artificial, immoral ways, through corporatocracy, oligarchy, uh, through the Federal Reserve, then I then I have a problem with it. And and yeah, AOC is right. This is inequality in a nutshell. Wages are stagnant or negative in terms of of real purchasing power year over year because of inflation but stocks are still outpacing inflation as of right now and and that's just leading to greater and greater amounts of inequality as always i'd like to thank every one of you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast and god bless